Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast, History of the Devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and I am continuing on with the Faust series. We were so lucky to have that interview with Catherine Walker. That was a real highlight in the Faust series and in the podcast. <clears throat> and this episode, I'm trudging onward, bravely ascending to the peaks of the Brocken for Valpurgis Doct. Yes, it means I am finally getting around to podcasting on Goethe's Faust, Faust Part 1. There's a Part 2. There's a sequel. Faust Part 1 is more similar in certain ways to what we've seen before, but it's been completely reworked. Aspects of the Marlowe and the... 16th century book that I started the series with do actually recur in Faust Part 2, and I'll be happy to draw your attention to that when it happens. But just for now, we are quite a bit in the future. We're looking at a work by Goethe that appeared, was developed in the 1770s. And interesting thing about this book, it develops over time. It has versions known as the Ur Faust from 1772-1775, a period of his life when Goethe was recruiting troops for um, to fight as mercenaries in the American Revolutionary War. Totally amazing. The a fragment version was published in 1790. The complete Faust one came together in 1808 was revised in 1828 and 29 and Faust part 2 was released posthumously. So a complicated production history, publication history, composition history. Before I go on too much further, I wanted to give a shout out to two blessed listeners who were so kind to leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. One from GFSFNB, one of my new go-tos. Terrific find for anyone interested in cultural history. Thank you. And also from the Peacock Angel. The hosts are funny and theologically well-informed. Really interesting and thought-provoking. Thanks to you two. Thanks to all our listeners. And yeah, you get the chance to leave a review and a, some stars. That would be amazing. So yeah, I'm talking about Goethe's Faust. It's been a while coming. I have... A approach to it that I can recommend and I will I will leave the appropriate links basically the text of Faust 1 it's not super long in the way that Shakespeare's Hamlet is not super super long but like Shakespeare's Hamlet if you do every scene it ends up being a lot of time so the actual uncut version that I watched was nearly five hours long. That's not including Faust 2. I'll include that. This version I can include has uh, English subtitles. I watched and read, which may have taken longer or not, less long. I don't know. Um, because 
on the page, I felt like I was just going to miss some of the nuance. And just watching it, I was afraid I was going to miss some of the, the verse. And the style of Faust 1 is, a lot of it rhymes. It's written in a way reminiscent of the poets of the 16th century, like Hans Sachs. And it's, it's, you know, it borrows in some ways from the Marlowe. It has a real Shakespearean sensibility. Uh, Goethe was an early German enthusiast for Shakespeare. And so that, that comes across. It was a pl- it's a play. It was inspired by a call from the philosopher and dramatist Gottfried Lessing to to have the writers of his generation and the following generation do a German national epic, basically. And so this wasn't just something that, that Faust, or yeah, Faust, like Goethe came up with it on his own. It was just sort of a challenge to like do the national story, do our story, show our that is German kind of classical inheritance and our who we are, like um, as a sort of rebuff to other European, especially French, sort of dominant forms of theater and poetry. So that's what we have here. The person who put this version together at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century is Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. I've been like, it's been, I, I've been doing this podcast or preparing for this podcast for more than a month and i watched the the long faust and read along great experience the the version i used is um from 2000 it stars bruno gans who's a, who's a famous german actor he plays hitler in untergang or, or downfall he's also john harker in the Klaus Kinski, Werner Herzog, Nosferatu. So that's where I, I grew up recognizing uh, Bruno Ganz. It's directed by Peter Stein. An interesting feature of this, it's it's it was it was done for the it was done for the 2000 Expo in Hanover in July 2000. Stars Bruno Ganz. Christian Nickel both play Faust. I'll get into why in a second. Basically, there's like two versions of Faust and there's two versions of Mephistopheles through the entire thing. The two Mephistopheles, respectively, are Johann Adam Oost. And there's, it seems like there's three here. Robert Hungerbühler and Christina Oosterlein. Different versions of Mephistopheles. I watched, I read, amazing experience. I loved it so much. I was, I've been sort of overwhelmed with how to approach it. And it's like not like, oh, like modern literature is more complex than pre-modern or early modern literature. It's not it at all. But there are, it's so self-aware and there's so much reference. There's so much illusion. There's so much tradition that's being worked with. There's so much complexity. One of the beautiful things about the Marlowe is how compact it is. This is not compact. <laughs> There's a lot of moving parts. And so I've been sort of, you know, in addition to being, you know, busy with other stuff, I've been a little bit intimidated to actually go through and do it. So what I think my approach to it is going to be, and we'll see how it, how it goes, is I'm going to talk through a couple scenes at a time after introducing it today. 
introducing it for this episode. And I hope to make it approachable and interesting and sort of, I can't hope to do justice to all the contextual things about it and the complex contemporary, now historical allusions to figures that Goethe was familiar with. I can't do all of that. I can't do like a, you know, exhaustive commentary and you wouldn't want to listen to it, frankly. <laughs> um, this isn't like a German lit class. Um, so I'm not going to do all that. I'm going to filter it through the prism of what we do in the show, thinking about evil, the concepts of evil, thinking about evil personified, thinking about the version of the diabolical and the demonic that we get here and what to make of it. So it's gonna we're going to stay in our lane, but there's a lot more to be said, obviously. Um, I think all German high schoolers have to read this. I think it's basically along the same stature maybe even more hegemonic than even Shakespeare is for um, U.S. English classes and I'm sure doubtless uh, British English classes too. So that's that's sort of what we're, what we're working with. A little bit about our guy Goethe, G-O-E-T-H-E, born 1749 on August 28th, died March 22nd, 1832. Sort of a Renaissance man. He was a lawyer. He was a poet. He was a novelist. He's a natural philosopher. He's a director. He's obviously a playwright. He was also a politician in a sense, or he was a civil servant, a high-level civil servant. And I'll explain all that as briefly as I can. He, his family's from Frankfurt am Main, one of the... Um, imperial cities of Germany, which is sort of these cities that have a level of independence from local, high level of independence from local um, royalty and other kinds of forms of governance in the Holy Roman Empire. This is a thing to know about, about Goethe. He's born at the end of the Holy Roman Empire, which is the empire that spanned uh, Central Europe from the Middle Ages to basically the Napoleonic era. He is sort of negotiating its, you know, death throes. And he witnesses the French Revolution, Napoleon's conquest, Napoleon's fall, and the beginnings of uh, Prussian hegemony that would lead to the creation of a, a German nation state by the end of the 19th century, though he didn't live to see that. He's got a, he's got a fawn in his name. He was not born nobility. He was ennobled by his boss, the Duke of uh, Saxe Weimar, Karl August, in 1782. He was born in a, a, a prosperous bourgeois family. He was trained, you know, he was, he was raised by uh, wealthy parents. Um, one of the things that's, that's true about the young Goethe is that he had a lot of training in lessons and, tutor, you know, was tutored in Latin, Greek, biblical Hebrew, and also had um, athletic training too. He was like sort of like this 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 wunderkind, like root prodigy at all kinds of things. Um, really interested in, in artwork, in the Renaissance, and, you know, was putting on puppet shows as a child. He studied law. I get the impression this was from the influence of his, of his father. And had some failures as a young lawyer, some recognition, 
um, goes to Leipzig to pursue legal studies. And it's there that he begins working on some of his early dramas, Gutz von uh, Bechlingen, um, but also his sort of really breakout success is a novel, which is the, the Sorrows of Young Werder. And it's roughly based on a love triangle that he was involved in, though he really blew up the, the, uh, the drama. This book was a smash hit. And what I really love about this, like it's, it's, it's a, such a big book. And it's the sort of emblematic book of the Sturm und Drang, the sort of the, the era of German literature that emphasizes like the subjective emotionalistic experiences of, of its characters and its narrators. And I mean, it's referenced in, in, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's one of the books that along with uh, paradise lost, it's one of the books that the creature that the, the monster reads when he's re- learning to be like a, a sentient being. It's like his part of his, his building his, his education. This book is such a big deal. It's part of what gets him invited to the court of Carl Carl August, the the Duke of uh, Saxe Weimar Eisenach. Um, and so I love this idea that you could like write a best selling novel, and a sort of minor noble duke person would be like, oh, like maybe I could use you in the administration of of my territory. So he's actually part of the uh, the Privy Council of this Duke and is helping him deal with policy. And like, not to get into the weeds with this, but like one of the main issues for a small territory like Weimar or Zaxa Weimar Eisenach is that it's between Prussia and Austria, which are the two like three billion pound, this is Germany, so it's not that big, but like these are the two forces of power in what's left of the Holy Roman Empire. And both of these, the, both of these powers are recruiting mercenaries and troops from the territory of of the duke, and as I mentioned before, like including for like sending mercenaries to the thirteen colonies to fight for Britain. So yeah, I'm not going to go through everything at Weimar. Partnering with Friedrich Schiller, we we sort of move from the Sturm und Drang into what's called like Weimar classicism, and. This is like where like the sort of the glory years of modern German literature start to be centered. Another thing I want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go through all the ins and outs of this guy's life. I'm just always blown away. Like this is this is modernity, you know. Like this is not like we're not talking about a million years ago. Like this is a few hundred years ago, and this is a this is a privileged person. This is a person who had money and access to power who met some of the, you know, met some of the most powerful people of his region. Is I think it's a story from that Nietzsche records where Goethe and Beethoven are like conversing and they see I think it's like the the emperor of Austria or something like that and and Goethe like bows and shows a lot of respect and Beethoven's like what are you doing? Like we are we're intellectually superior to the nobility and the aristocracy. And Goethe's like, you got to know your place, man. So Goethe's like a conservative in the sense that he is part and was recognized and promoted by the established order of Germany. He was not a reactionary, but he, you know, he was someone who had a healthy skepticism for the revolutionary forces that were sweeping Europe, especially during the French Revolution. 
But I, the point I was going to make was that this is a privileged person with his uh, lover and then wife, uh, Christiana Vulpius. He had five children and only one, their eldest son, like survived to adulthood. Just, I don't know. So like the the death of a child is an important feature of the plot in, in Faust. And just even for like elite people, how fragile life was and how you just lost young children like constantly like i I just it's we think about modernity like we think that we're like somehow in like communion with other moderns you know over the course of a few hundred years but it's just also amazing like how radically different i think that is for from the experience of you know we i live in the united states where like you know infant mortality compared to other other countries in the global north and other like post-industrial countries is like very high and, but it's still it's just the the amount of death for children in this time and for everyone it's just it's just something that blows my mind so i'm starting with the prologue in heaven there's actually two further pieces of introductory material to the edited revised faust that reflect on art and reflect on creation and reflect on living in your context and trying to create art in your context and that stuff's all great, but we're here for the devils, right? And so the prologue in heaven is a recreation of the beginning moments of Job, of the book of Job. The, you know, we, we talked about this years ago now, um, but bear with me. At, right, like God is in, in heaven, in the heavenly court, and is approached by Satan or Hashatan, the adversary who's not a demonic adversary or enemy of God in Job, but is, is, is a, te- is a divine tester of people and sort of a, a, a like bad cops to the good cops of the angels. And God gets into a kind of contest with the adversary to see if Job will stay loyal to God. The adversary is allowed to wipe out Job's property, kill his children, and then to escalate to like bring sickness upon him, to bring like sores upon his skin, to devastate his health, and to see if he can, if he's going to stay a good person. Because it's easy to be good when your life's going great. The adversary says, which is a, a good point, I think. There's that, that luck factor. So we get a different version of that by Goethe. And the angels, Raphael, Michael, and Gabriel are reflecting on the beautiful mechanisms of creation. They're, they're, they're focused, and this is, I think this is a very telling point, they're focused on the, the beautiful operation of nature, which sort of signals a kind of enlightenment tinge to this whole thing. And it also signals that we are a few hundred years past the Reformation, we're into a more modern sensibility, despite all the stuff I just said about infant mortality. And then the Mephistopheles pops up and he's like, you guys are like so sublimely cerebral. And he's like, I don't really notice all this heavenly machinery with nature. What I notice is just like how human beings are torturing themselves. What he says is, Von Sonnen und Welten weiß ich nichts zu sagen. Ich sehe nur, wie sich die Menschen plagen. 
And he gets into, as with Job, into a, a, a contest with God. And it's funny because Christians and people who accept the devil as God's enemy read Job through that prism, even though that's not the actual worldview of the people who put Job together. Goethe recreates Job with the devil, or, or in this case, Mephistopheles, who's a, who's a devil or demon, as, you know, as an enemy of God, sort of, but in, you know, doing the same sort of, of conversation. And instead of putting Faust through hell, through trying him with, you know, calamities and plagues and tribulation, the, the point is, is that Mephistopheles is going to try to seduce him through the pleasures of the world to his side and god as in, as with job this you know the, the story of job has faith in faust and he says something to the effect that like oh like yeah you're right maybe his his orientation right now is confused and he's too caught up in his learnedness and his quests for knowledge and experience but I'm like the patient gardener. I know when to trim. I know when to let my plants, you know, develop and, you know, green. I know when to wait for the blossom. And even though it seems like he is confused and in danger now, he's going to be fine. So you can try your best. And so they're, they're enemies. And there's, there's an interesting, they have, you know, they're enemies. But again, this in some ways signals the sort of the way that Goethe is by no means a dogmatist, a Christian dogmatist. He has a complex engagement in Christianity, comes from a Lutheran city like Frankfurt. But he is not using the story of Faust to prove points of Lutheran doctrine. He's, he's using it for something else. And so he has Mephistopheles and God in a kind, they have a kind of banter. They have a kind of dynamic and God at one point is like, you know, like I've never hated you. I've never, you know, like, like this could be, you, you can try this out. This can be fine. But like, like things don't have to be that bad between us. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then the, the, the end of the scene, the end of the prologue, the devil's essentially like, you know, now once, you know, Mephistopheles is like once, in, you know, it's great sometimes just to sort of cross swords with the old guy. I'll read, I'll read the line in German. From Zeit to Zeit sehe ich den alten gern. From time to time I see the old guy. You know, it's fun to see the old guy. Und hüte mich mit ihm zu brecken. Es ist gar hübsch von einem großen Herrn, so menschlich mit dem Teufel selbst zu sprechen. It's so humane that he would deign to speak with the devil. It's so it's so human. And you know, this is, you know, this is sort of like the, the blasphemy in a certain way of, of Goethe. It's so it's so it's so personable. It's so well bred of God to to deign to speak with the devil. And then we're alone with Faust in his study in the night. And like all the versions we've looked at so far, he starts off with the enumeration of the disciplines he's mastered. He's a very accomplished scholar. He's like I've studied philosophy. I studied the law. I've studied medicine, and unfortunately, I've studied theology. <laughs> it really, he really plays it up for effect in, in, in this, this scene. But we have here 
I think like most pronouncedly a vision of Faust as a frustrated, like almost it's like a senior scholar. He is someone who is brilliant, who has made his name in various fields. He is well ensconced with the university post and he's miserable. And it's interesting to think about like what is driving him crazy. He's like, I, I know all this stuff, but like I haven't gotten to the core of reality. I'm also like pent up in this provincial tomb of an academic world. I'm lonely. And I, like, want to, like, know things for real. Like, I want to, like, experience the truth of things. And this really, not to go down the byways of of all the philosophical stuff going on, but, like, in some ways, like, he is expressing the dynamic or the dilemma that, that Immanuel Kant, the sort of the great philosopher of the time, is, is speaking to, where it's, like, what can we know? Like, and... and Goethe's like coming up against the limitations and the contextual situatedness of himself. And he's like, I, I know all the stuff that people say is important to know, but like, I feel that there's like a core of bullshit at the heart of it. And I don't know like what's real. I don't know what's important. I don't, I haven't experienced anything powerful and tonight we're tonight. It's going to (laughs) change. And he's like flipping open his old books. He's like, he, there's like an avalanche of tomes like about to about to suffocate him and avalanche him to death at any point in this scene and i don't like i'm sort of reading the book but i'm also thinking about the the production i'm watching which is which i uh, which i really liked and he summons the spirit of the earth he's he sort of has he stumbles upon like some like geomancy earth magic sort of natural philosophy and he is able to i'm trying to find the name of the the spirit it's like the natur it's like the spirit of nature um that he 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 like sort of with so much passion like just sort of brings into the room with him and it doesn't go great this spirit is terrifying It, it it overwhelms him This the earth spirit and the earth spirits like I am, you know, we've, we've seen a, an image of God earlier on the person that Mephistopheles debates, but this seems to be almost like the sort of pantheist, you know, Spinozist like form of divinity that we see throughout the rest of the play. It's the spirit like wafts and winds through all of life is there with you from birth to death and is terrible it's almost like a in sort of like a yahwehistic sort of way like elementally powerful and faust brings this person into the room with him and then is terrified and this this the spirit's like what did you think was going to happen and faust is is then at first awed but then is defiant he's like no like i he says like, i'm the, i'm made in the image of god and the, the ebenbild gottes like i am i am as much a god as you are. Ich bin's, 
And this, this, uh, this earth spirit's like, okay, okay, dude. He's like, you're like, a, he's like, the only God or divinity that you can, that you are, that you are similar to is the one that you can conceive of. You are nothing like me. You are a worm compared to me. And then Faust's understudy, Wagner, knocks on the door. And this whole scene ends. And from that point on, I'm, I won't sort of, I won't get into their conversation, but like after, after Wagner leaves, Faust is like sort of goes back into his, his sort of soliloquies. And like this, you know, this play is, it's written as a play, but it's, I, I've seen critics say it's more like a piece of epic poetry. he ends up like sort of seeing a vial of poison on his shelf and coming within a hair's breadth of committing suicide. This is his way of like, I can't break on through to the other side to do the Jim Morrison. <laughs> I, you know, I, I want to experience the absolute truth of a real existence and maybe just, you know, being rid of this mortal coil is the way to do it. And, he hears the bells in the choir for Easter begin as he's about to drink this draft and it stops him from committing suicide. Again, it's like so hard not to feel like, Oh, like this is like a literary war crime that I'm perpetrating here that I'm leaving so much out, but I'm just, I'm just sort of going with it and trying to do my best. So I I hope you bear with me. Easter, Faust and Wagner go out walking, and they encounter the peasants of the region who toast Faust and honor him because together with his father, and this is a totally new backstory that Goethe supplies, together with his father, Faust helped treat the, the peasants for plague basically helped avert mass death and the peasants are dancing there's drinking faust is the man of honor and wagner is like wow like how does it feel to be like honored like that to be a celebrity to be part of something so important and faust makes this confession he's like well my father and i just like my father just messed around with his ignoramus style natural philosophy and science and what we thought were elixirs to protect these people and inoculate them were poisons and we 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 killed them the scene is great because faust unburdens himself of this guilt and confesses to feeling a mockery in the praise of the peasants that Together with his father, he perpetrated something far worse in these mountains and valleys than the plague ever could have. <clears throat> and Wagner, I guess, like ever the kiss ass, is like, oh, maybe you're mistaken. But what I love about this scene is it 
it sort of goes from this sort of uh, cheerful, rustic dance on Easter, and the sun falls very quickly, and we move from the pastoral comforts of old-time religion and conviviality to the Hound of the Baskervilles. I love this. Like, and the uh, the Peter Stein version really gets this. The sun goes down. Suddenly, it's it's twilight is at hand. Wagner seems a little nervous, and they notice a poodle is approaching them. And Faust is like, doesn't it seem as if there's like a flaming trace and a tread of the poodle as it as it approaches? And Wagner's like, it must be your eyes playing tricks on you. And the poodle paces round and round and round and like sort of encircling Faust. In exactly the same way, I would argue, the fiery man paces round and round and round Faust in the first volume we discussed in the Faust series. So what was a fiery man fallen from a meteor has become a dog. Faust brings the dog back to his study. He's still, you know, lost in despair and trying to get a grip on things starts reading from the new testament he starts translating the greek into german and he wants to use the gospel of john and the gospel of john famously begin famously begins in the beginning was the word and faust retranslates it as eventually in the beginning was the deed on Anfang war die Tat. And he's, as he's working through his translation, the dog starts freaking out. And to me, it's like a real influence on the dog in John Carpenter's The Thing, where the dog, where the alien comes in the form of the dog to infiltrate the Arctic research camp. And it looks like a dog, acts like a dog, but it's not a dog. And that's the situation we have here. Looks like a dog, but it starts freaking out with the New Testament. And Faust, he's like, he's ready, man. He springs into action. He starts bringing out his natural philosophy, his magic. He and he's using the key of Solomon. He's he's like conjuring and using spells. He's trying to fight this sudden monster that has appeared in his room in the form of the dog. And eventually, it precipitates out a person dressed like a traveling scholar who is Mephistopheles. And Mephistopheles is like, oh, what's with all the noise? What's going on? Um, but it's like a, this big sort of magical fight. So Mephistopheles, there's always some banter. And it's like one of the things that God said in the prologue that I, I didn't cover that God's like, it's always okay to deal with you demons, especially with the jokers and the rogues. You guys are okay. And that's who Mephistopheles is. And Faust is like, well, like, who are you? And Mephistopheles is like, I'm like just a part of the kind of power in this universe that always tries to, that always wants the worst, what's evil, and ends up making the best. In German, Ein Teil von jener Kraft, die stets das Böse will und stets das Gute schafft. It's all got a rhyme. It rhymes the whole way through, which is awesome. 
And we sort of see Shakespeare, we see Milton working their way through that. And Faust is like, what are you talking about? And Mephistopheles is like, I'm the spirit who always says no. I'm the spirit who negates or denies. Ich bin der Geist, der stets verneint. And he's like, and I, I'm right to do it because anything that I deny comes, comes about, is, is born in history. And anything that is mortal or not eternal deserves to decompose and fall apart and go wrong. And that's what I'm here for. I'm here to be the feather on the camel's back. I'm here to, to be the, the, the tipping point. They spar a little bit. And then Mephistopheles is like, before I have any further engagements with you, I need to like go back to hell and check in with my boss. And Faust doesn't want to let him go. And Mephistopheles is like, I need your help to go because I need to leave the way I came. And there's a pentagram drawn over by the threshold of the door and I can't get around it. And Faust is like, why don't you go out the window? And Mephistopheles is like, you have to come for devils and spirits. We have to come in. We have to leave the way we came in. It's, it's sort of funny. He says, es ist ein Gesetz der Teufel und Gespenste, wo sie hereingeschlüpft, da müssen sie hinaus. Anyway, he's like, der Pudel merkte nichts, als er hereingesprungen. Die Sache sieht jetzt anders aus. Der Teufel kann nicht aus dem Haus. Anyway, he's like, he can't get out. And Faust is like, why would I let you go? I, it was, I, you know, maybe I've gone to some considerable trouble to get you here. Like, I'm not going to let you go. And so then Mephistopheles summons these spirits who are like sexy spirits in the production. And they sort of sing Faust to sleep. And then a rat comes and chews a little hole, a little gap in the pentagram. And through that gap, Mephistopheles slips out and makes his escape. Join me next time as we trace the further adventures of Dr. Faust and how he comes to a more amicable relationship with Mephistopheles, what they do together, and what kind of trouble they get into. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.